Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is part five in the fracture season, where the focus will be on the tibia, fibula, and the ankle. As is the case with other recent episodes, Cincinnati Children's and I have partnered to deliver CME and MOC Part 2. You can get information on how to claim your CME in the show notes and on PEMblog.com. Analogous to my episode on the forearm, this episode will contain detailed information on the neurovascular assessment of the lower extremity. So it's a good idea to listen to this one before the upcoming episodes on the femur and the foot. So the pulses that you should be feeling for the lower extremity include the posterior tibial and the dorsalis pedis. Sensory examination is something that I did not learn as well as the upper extremity during training. So you want to focus on several different nerves, and it takes practice and perhaps looking at a diagram to get used to doing this. So the deep perineal nerve, you're going to assess dorsally between the first and second toes. The superficial perineal nerve, remainder of the dorsal or the top of the foot. The medial plantar nerve, the great toe to the mid-fourth toe on the plantar surface, the sole surface. The lateral plantar nerve, the lateral fourth and fifth of the plantar surface. The sural nerve is the lateral foot, and the saphenous nerve is the medial foot. If patients can flex their toes, you know that the tibial nerve is intact. And if they can extend their toes, they know that the deep perineal nerve is intact. So lower extremity fractures, especially tib-fib fractures, are at much higher risk for compartment syndrome because of the energy transmission to the soft tissues that are associated with the fracture. So compartment syndrome should be suspected if you see excessive swelling and ecchymosis of that lower leg. You have leg pain that is poorly responsive to parenteral analgesia, even drugs like morphine. A lot of pain on passive extension of the toes. Tenseness in the affected muscle compartments. And a cold leg and foot with poor perfusion and diminished or absent pulses. That's actually a late finding. So in general, if you're suspicious for a tib, fib, or ankle fracture, you're getting AP and lateral x-rays, and a radiologist may recommend an oblique view if the AP is insufficient. Know that tibial fractures are incredibly common, and fibular fractures, for the most part, are less significant unless you're dealing with the ankle. Toddlers and young children sustain these from low-energy falls, Whereas older kids and adolescents, these are sports and motor vehicle collisions. And it's the older kids and the adolescents that have that higher risk of compartment syndrome. So let's start with the proximal tibia. So in the three to nine-year-old range, these are often green stick or complete metaphyseal fractures. Um, and a common mechanism for both of these is jumping and landing, like on a trampoline when there's nine kids on when there's only supposed to be one. Kids that are older than 10, you'll see tibial spine avulsions, physial fractures, and these occur in sports or motor vehicle collisions. Rare in children, physis injuries can have hemarthrosis, and rarely posterior displacement of the fracture part with injury to the popliteal artery, which I don't have to remind you is bad. A tibial tubercle avulsion is like the worst case of Osgood Schlatter ever, and this is landing from a jump with forced flexion. The patella rides up. The quads contract, and you've essentially got the anterior portion of the tibia that just kind of yoinks away from the rest of the bone. Another important type of a proximal tibial fracture is the corner or the bucket handle metaphyseal fracture, which is near pathognomonic for child abuse. 
You want to call orthopedics immediately for proximal tibial fractures if they're open, if you're concerned about compartment syndrome, if you've got a displaced Salter Harris 3, 4, or 5 fracture, these are going to need open reduction, if the fracture extends into the joint, or if you've got a really displaced tibial tubercle avulsion. Otherwise, splint these patients in extension. They are non-weight bearing with orthopedic follow-up within one week, and these patients will generally end up in a long leg cast for about four to six weeks. Tibial spine fractures need closer follow-up within two to three days. Know that these fractures are incredibly painful. So for many other fractures, ibuprofen is great and could be the only pain medicine you need along with immobilization. Please consider adding oxycodone or oral morphine for patients that you discharge home with proximal tibial fractures. Fortunately, most patients do well, um, unless obviously there's a vascular injury, intraarticular, or there's a complete green stick. So let's move further down the tibia to the shaft. And this is actually, depending on what you read, the third most common fracture in kids. Most are oblique or transverse of the mid or distal third. An associated fibular shaft fracture is seen in about 30%. Transverse tibial shaft fractures happen with direct blows, and you should definitely think abuse in small children. An oblique tibial shaft fracture is a mechanism kind of like a toddler's fracture, uh, where there's a planted foot and a weird land on a jump or a turn, and oblique fractures are more likely to be displaced and open. Plastic bowing occurs because you've got that strong periosteum around the bones, and this is generally from an axial load. Then you can also see torus or buckle fractures of the tibial shaft. This is almost always from landing or compression from jumping. You'll see minimal swelling, and these occur at the distal metadiaphysis where the bone is most porous. In older children, more force is generally required to break the tibia. So this is like skiing, sports, uh, motor vehicle collisions. If you have an open fracture, there exists a little bit of controversy with management. Obviously, if the entire bone's sticking out, that needs to go to the operating room. But if it's a type 1 open fracture, so the laceration is less than a centimeter and it's clean, well, maybe they can do non-op treatment with irrigation and ED immobilization alone. You should definitely still call ortho. Know that compartment syndrome, as I mentioned earlier, has a much higher risk when you see tibial fractures, especially oblique displaced tibial fractures. These require fasciotomies, and if you're even a little bit concerned, call ortho. So in general, tibial shaft fractures that need orthopedic calls immediately include those that are open, compartment, a pathologic fracture, so you fracture through a cyst or a tumor, um, something that's unstable, like if it's displaced greater than 10 degrees anterior, or greater than 5 degrees varus or valgus deformity, and any with greater than 1 centimeter of foreshortening. After reduction, most patients are admitted for observation, again, for worry for compartment syndrome. Generally, patients without displaced fractures or who don't meet those criteria for immediate ortho should be placed in a long leg posterior splint and non-weight bearing. Orthopedics will put these kids in a long leg cast with a 45 degree knee bend and 90 degree ankle bend for about four to six weeks. And then they'll go into a short leg brace. So these can take a long time to heal. Now, I would trust that all of you have heard of and likely seen a toddler's fracture, which is a specific kind of spiral fracture that occurs in children between nine months and three years of age. Now, most often this occurs when the body rotates on a fixed foot. 
so they can jump off the couch and land on the ground. Their leg can be twisted under them as they're going down a slide. And toddler fractures could include foot fractures as well, but most often, especially on board tests, this um, entunes a spiral tibial fracture. 90 to 95% of toddlers' fractures have a clear mechanism on history, and that should help a bit when trying to sort out abuse concerns. The force is usually mild and the displacement's minimal, so it's not an impressive story, but the kid won't walk, and then you see a fracture. The history will often just be, he won't walk on it, or her leg hurts. You should suspect a toddler's fracture if you palpate the leg and either twist or squeeze the leg to localize pain. You can kind of gently grind the heel into the foot to see if it elicits pain as well. Most commonly, you will see a non-displaced spiral fracture of the distal tibia, or even a normal-looking x-ray. But again, if the kid won't walk, and you can localize pain along that tibial shaft, even if the x-ray shows no obvious fractures, treat it like a toddler's fracture. A repeat x-ray in 7 to 10 days can show new bone growth in the form of a periosteal reaction, which is actually sometimes pretty subtle. Management of toddler's fractures has undergone some changes over the past decade. So retrospective observational studies have shown that a controlled ankle movement walker boot is preferable to a short leg cast when there's no to minimal displacement. So you can actually place the kid in that type of device and send to ortho in 7 to 10 days. A splint that includes a stirrup and a foot plate is also an option. If you place a splint that is not adequately padded and then the kid decides to walk on it, you are definitely setting them up for risk of pressure ulcers. So let's move laterally now and talk about the fibular shaft. So this fracture is usually associated with a tibial fracture in the ipsilateral leg. You can get an isolated fibular fracture from a lateral blow to the leg like you're smacked really hard with a hockey stick, but most often you'll see a fibula fracture when the tibia is broken as well. Patients with a fibula fracture can have a stirrup splint with a foot plate, crutches, and ortho follow-up within a week, and then they'll get a short leg walking cast. That's for the isolated fibula fracture. Interestingly, the fibula itself is not essential to ambulation. I mean, it kind of helps. Um, but know that if you see a shaft fracture of the fibula, you're probably going to be managing a tibial fracture as well. So I'm going to talk about the ankle next, and I'm going to talk about it as part of the tib-fib I'll do the foot as a separate podcast, but really ankle fractures, the most important ones that you'll see clinically in pediatrics involve the tibia and fibula rather than the talus. You'll see more boys having ankle fractures than girls, and many of these occur in the context of sports like basketball and then riding various things with wheels. And the ankle joint itself is basically a flexible hinge. The tibia and the medial malleolus and the fibula and its lateral malleolus hold the talus in place with these strong syndesmotic ligaments. The medial and lateral ligament complexes, you know, the site of most sprains, provide a lot of additional support. And these ligaments are stronger than the growth plates. The tibial physis closes starting around age 12 for girls and about 14 for boys, and it takes about 18 months or so to close. The fibular physis closes one to two years after the tibia. The most common mechanism of injury is either inversion or eversion, and along with that, the foot can be plantar flexed, dorsiflexed, or even neutral. So if you kind of ask how they landed, you can start to think about where to expect pain and injury. You definitely want to inspect the ankle for stability and deformity. 
know that the amount of swelling seen on physical exam is not a reliable predictor of fracture severity or even the presence of a fracture in and of itself. The distal fibular physis is the most common site of ankle fracture in children. Before I talk about some specific fracture morphologies, I wanted to chat about the low-risk ankle rule, which has a sensitivity to detect clinically relevant ankle fractures of about 98 to 100% and a negative predictive value of 99.7%. The low-risk ankle rule suggests that you do not need x-rays of the ankle if the following criteria are met. The injury is acute, so less than three days old. The child is not at risk for pathologic fractures, so they don't have osteogenesis imperfecta or like a known focal bone lesion like an osteoid osteoma. The child does not have any congenital anomalies of their feet or ankles. The patient can reliably tell you whether or not they have pain. Physical examination demonstrates tenderness or swelling confined to the distal fibula and or the adjacent lateral ligaments distal to the anterior tibial joint line. And there's no gross deformity, neurovascular compromise, or other serious and potentially distracting injuries. I put the links to a couple of studies that really detail this, and I highly advise you to take a look at them. Using the low-risk ankle rule can reduce the use of x-rays without missing any important fractures, you know, like the kind that need surgeries, but it's up to you to counteract the perceived expectation that parents and patients want an x-ray. They actually just want you to do a good job, and using the low-risk ankle rule is how you do a good job. A small number of non-significant fractures, you know, the kind that won't need surgery and aren't at risk for growth arrest, are missed by the low-risk ankle rules. So if pain is still an issue or there's additional concerns, you can get a repeat x-ray at 7 to 10 days. Using the low-risk ankle rule in the ED is a wonderful example of shared decision-making. And I'm not actually going to go into detail with the Ottawa ankle rules, and many of you are actually more familiar with them. So in the interest of brevity, I will let you know that they're less helpful in children than adults, and they don't perform as well as the low-risk ankle rule. They're less specific, and the implementation studies aren't really up to snuff. So if you do think there's a fracture, so there's some positives on the low-risk ankle rule questions, or there's some deformity, um, you get AP, lateral, and mortise views of the ankle, so three views. That mortise view is a special AP view that highlights the dome of the talus. In one out of five ankle fractures, the abnormality is only seen on one of the three views, so you always get all three. The ankle has several complex fractures that may actually benefit from CT as well, and you should probably talk to orthopedics if you're concerned about those. These include the triplane, the juvenile tilo, um, Salter Harris 4. We'll talk about those in a little bit. In general, management of stable ankle fractures means that you splint the kid and you can use a foot plate with a stirrup splint or an ankle lacer, a raptor, or an air cast. And there's some advantages to the latter ones. So let's start with the distal fibula. Remember I mentioned that that's the most common. So if you get a non-displaced Salter Harris 1 or 2, this is usually seen in inversion injuries, and these are skeletally immature patients. These are very stable. You can see the triangular Thurston Holland, not Thurston Howell, corner fracture in a Salter Harris 2 fracture, but most of these don't need reduction. You don't need to call ortho for most of these unless you've got a big avulsion injury or that Thurston Holland, that corner fracture of the Salter Harris 2 is really displaced. Patients can be placed in a removable ankle brace or a stirrup with a foot place splint and given crutches. 
Recovery can take up to 6 to 12 weeks total for return to sports and activity, and pain is expected to be maximal, uh, regressing over about a 2 to 3 week period. The distal tibial fractures, if they're a non-displaced Salter-Harris 1 or 2, these are usually seen in inversion or eversion injuries, with Salter-Harris 2 being far more common than Salter-Harris 1. If they're non-displaced, put them in a stirrup splint with a foot plate, splint, and crutches. These patients are going to eventually need a short leg cast for about 2 to 3 weeks, then a walking cast for 2 to 3 more weeks. Recovery can take 10 to 12 weeks total. These are more rare than the distal fibula, and they're worse overall. Remember I said before, the fibula is not like totally essential for walking, so a distal tibial fracture has much more significant functional impact than a distal fibula fracture. Obviously, contact orthopedics if it's displaced, open, or unstable. Reduction might not be successful if the deltoid ligament kind of gets stuck in the fracture line, and so ortho can determine if this needs open reduction internal fixation. The juvenile tillow fracture is a Salter-Harris 3 fracture of the distal tibia. This is the most common Salter-Harris type 3 fracture in skeletally immature children. This is an inversion injury with the foot externally rotated, and a CT in these cases can help determine the degree of displacement. If you want and you're not driving, you can Google a picture of the juvenile tillow fracture. These always need orthopedic consult in the ED. Greater than 2 millimeters of displacement is a general criterion for reduction. Patients are placed in posterior splints. They are non-weight bearing. They get crutches. You could consider a stirrup and foot plate, but these are high-risk injuries. So ortho in the non-displaced kid may be conservative and cast them for up to four to six weeks with a long leg cast being converted to a short leg cast for another month. Eight to 12 weeks of non-weight bearing are needed and recovery can take three months or more. The triplane fracture is a special Salter-Harris 4 fracture of the ankle. And this is a Salter-Harris 4 of the tibia that includes an injury in the sagittal plane, the coronal plane, and the transverse plane. So these are like a 3D image, triplane, three planes of injury. You almost always need a CAT scan to determine fracture planes. These need open reduction internal fixation, so hardware with orthopedics. And these have a high risk of growth arrest. Fortunately, they, along with Salter-Harris, five fractures are fortunately very rare. So if you have to have a distal tibia fracture reduced, they're going to need to see ortho within one week. Non-displaced can see their PCP or ortho within 7 to 10 days. Ibuprofen is fine for the non-displaced fracture, but you know these tolo fractures, these triplane fractures... A, they're probably going to be admitted, and B, these hurt really, really bad, so opioids are a good option for three or four days. Fortunately, despite some of these rare morphologies that need surgery, most ankle fractures in children do really, really well. All right, so that's all that I've got for fractures of the tibia, fibula, including the ankle. Know that these are really common in children, and I guarantee that you will see toddler's fractures throughout training. Know that those may have quote-unquote normal x-rays, but if the kid won't bear weight and they're in pain, they should still be immobilized and follow up with ortho. Know also that tibial shaft fractures, especially oblique ones, are much higher risk for compartment syndrome than other pediatric fractures. Make sure you listen to this episode before the upcoming foot episode if you want to bone up on the neurovascular assessment of the lower extremity. And again, CME and MOC Part 2 are being offered through Cincinnati Children's, 
And if you want more details, it's in the show notes or on PEMblog.com. Well, that's all for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I hope you enjoyed part five of the Fracture Season. Go ahead and follow me on Twitter or check out the Facebook page. Check out PEMblog.com for more great educational content. And leave a review on any of the podcast sites that you use or comment on the blog. I would really appreciate the feedback. For PEM Currents, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.